2 Corinthians chapter 9, we'll give a little background here in just a moment concerning this sermon text and why we are here and, and not in the book of Acts. As many of you know, we have been working through the book of Acts prior to the last few weeks, during which time I've spent a concentrated period of time on, on PhD studies. I'll say something about that as well. In fact, I might as well go ahead and do it while you're turning. Many of you know this. Um, I'm in the midst of a PhD in historical and theological studies. What a privilege it is to, to spend time studying uh, the topics, uh, the authors uh, that I get to study and, and, and work through. In fact, I tell people all the time that one of the reasons why I love church history is I'm privileged to read the word of God alongside of a great cloud of witnesses throughout the last 2,000 years. And uh, that is a tremendous benefit. Well, part of the program that I am in includes the completion of a series of uh, torture acts. Amen. As old PhDs do, uh, this one in particular um, includes a series of written comprehensive examinations. I, it's my understanding that all PhDs have comprehensive examinations. Um, in, in the program in which I am in, they're all written. And uh, there are three days. They took place over three days. It was this past week. And so uh, I took those written comprehensive examinations Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, I think. It's all a bit of a blur. And um, through the patience and support of this congregation, you all, and uh, through the commitment of our pastoral staff, which has just been a tremendous blessing to me, to my wife, to my children, and to my sanity, I was privileged to take a few weeks away from the pulpit, and uh, other brothers occupied the pulpit for a few weeks, and I have now completed those assessments. I've been asked a number of times, well, how did you do? I have no idea. That's part of the torture. Uh, <laughs> they make you take the assessments, and uh, then they make you wait. I'm, I'm not convinced that they haven't already graded them. They just sit around and wait, because that's just part of the process of sanctification, and uh, that's precisely what I'm in the midst of. So, I'll hear in the next few weeks, I've also been asked, well, how do you feel about them? And I've said, if this is possible, it's a bit of an oxymoron, I've said something along the lines of, I am reluctantly confident. <laughs> right? <laughs> to be confident is not to be reluctant. To be reluctant is not to be confident. But somehow, I'm both of those at the same time. However, and I'll get on, I know, I'll get on past this. You didn't come here to hear me talk about comprehensive examinations. Nevertheless, I've been thinking about this for a number of months. Uh, so it's where my mind has been. For those of you who have read Pilgrim's Progress, um, your reward in heaven will be great. For those of you who haven't, you need to repent and read Pilgrim's Progress. Um, uh, you know, jokes aside, I, I would recommend that you read this work. Uh, John Bunyan, of course, wrote the work beginning around 1660 as he was in prison under the restoration of George II. I feel a little bit like, if you've read this work, I feel a little bit like Christian whose burden fell off his back and rolled down the hill at the foot of the cross, rolled down the hill and went into what? Do you remember this? His burden rolled into the tomb. Stone, the stone tomb. I feel a little bit like that. In fact, in fact, I felt like that Thursday about 12.31. 12.31 p.m. So, well, if you've been with us, enough about that. If you've been with us over the previous few weeks, you know that we're right in the middle of a topical sermon series. 
And that topical sermon series is an attempt to answer the question, what is a healthy church member? And it's for that reason you have turned to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to read together verses 6 through 15. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 15, because this is the word of God and you are the people of God and it is, after all, the Lord's day. Would you please stand for the reading and the receiving of God's word. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, Paul the Apostle wrote these words as he was carried along by the Spirit of God. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated, church family. I have heard that there are four types of members in every ministry. You may have heard me say this before. I've stolen it. There are the wishbones, wishing somebody would do something about all the problems. There are the jawbones, can imagine where this is going, doing all the talking, but very little else. Third, there are the knuckle bones, those who knock everything that is done. And finally, there are the much-needed backbones, those who carry the brunt of the load and do most of the work for the health of the ministry. You might say, that we are, through this sermon series, this topical series, we're taking a break from the book of Acts. We'll go back to Acts here sometime soon. Don't know when. Sometime soon. We are seeking through this series to cultivate more backbones for the health and the growth of this local church right here at First Baptist Church in Powell, Tennessee. 
By way of review, just to kind of give us a bit of background as to what's been talked about, Pastor Tim demonstrated a few weeks ago that a healthy church member faithfully attends and participates in the worship assemblies of the church. A healthy church member is present in the church. Pastor Hunter contended week two of the series that a healthy church member prays for the church. Prayer should be like breathing, he said. And so a healthy church member is in prayer, constant prayer, persistent prayer, ceaseless prayer for the church. Last week, Pastor Adam showed us that a healthy church member serves the church. The man or woman of God gifted by the power of the Spirit of God is gifted for the purpose of the common good, for edifying the church. And so Pastor Adam, last Lord's Day, called all of us to consider how it is we might serve the body of Christ known as the church. And today, today we will learn that a healthy church member gives generously to the church. That's, that's the thesis for the morning. It's really quite simple, isn't it? A healthy church member gives generously to the church. And the way I want to unpack this characteristic of a healthy church member is by asking a single question. There are a number of ways we could have gotten at this, but I just preferred to stick with one question. Maybe these days I'm simple-minded, okay? So one question that we're going to seek to answer this Lord's Day morning. Here's the question. Why should you give generously to the church? There are many reasons why you shouldn't, but there are more compelling reasons why you should. We're gonna talk about those. Why, why should you give generously to the church, if you're taking notes, we will identify and briefly unpack five reasons, five answers, you might say, to the question, why should you give generously to your local church? And, and by the way, most of these reasons will come from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, really 2 Corinthians chapter 9, but we will draw from other texts as this is a, a topical sermon series, and so it'll have that flavor throughout the morning. However, we will be in this text from beginning to end for the most part. As an aside, I want to say something to qualify what we're going to be talking about this morning. There are many ministries, many causes uh, that you ought to be giving to. You'll determine what causes those are, what ministries those are. There are many opportunities you have to share what God has given to you with others. And so um, praise the Lord for that, and you ought to be considering that. But that's not our goal this morning. Our goal this morning is a bit more concentrated than simple generosity as a believer in Jesus Christ. Our goal this morning is to talk about why believers ought to give in particular to their local church. So what I say this morning, however, is not to dismiss generosity shown to other ministries, to parachurch ministries or even other church ministries, okay? But we're focusing this morning a bit more narrowly on what it means to give to your local church. Uh, in the book of Acts, quite appropriate, right? We've been there for a number of weeks. The book of Acts, chapter four, at the conclusion of chapter four, there is a, a summary as to what the church was doing, the earliest church, we might even say, this is right after Pentecost. What were they doing? One of the things they were doing is they were selling their possessions. And of course, this is as needs are surfacing in the body of Christ. They're selling their possessions. But what are they doing with the proceeds? They're bringing the proceeds and they're placing the proceeds at the feet of the apostles. Why does that matter? Why is Luke telling us, as he's carried along by the Spirit of God, that what they did 
is they sacrificed all of that by placing it at the feet of the apostles. He's showing us that they're giving it away as an act of trust to the local church. This is local church giving. So among other things, whatever things you choose to give to, I'm going to contend this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you ought to be giving to your local church. Okay? You ought to be giving to the local church. Well, younger worshipers, I did feel the need to to give you a couple things to look for throughout this sermon, even though it is a topical sermon. So a couple things for you. If you are one of our younger worshipers in the room, parents, you can use these perhaps to engage your younger worshiper in the middle of the sermon. Feel free to do that. Feel free to lean over and have conversations about the sermon. First of all, younger worshiper, I want you to look for this. How does the gospel encourage us to give? What is it about the gospel, the message of Jesus, that actually encourages us to give, and maybe even specifically to give to the local church? Never too young to begin learning this. Secondly, secondly, I want you to just ask and answer the big question we're asking and answering this morning, okay? It's the same question with which we started. Why should Christians give to the church? We're going to give five reasons. I want you to be able to give some reasons later today to your mom or your dad or your grandparent or someone else, maybe even a friend. Why should Christians give to the church? Okay, those are two questions, younger worshipers, I want you to focus on. Well, let's get right to answering the question. Why should you give generously to the church? Five reasons, all right? We're gonna just march through them. First, first and perhaps preeminently, generous giving expresses the gospel. Generous giving expresses the gospel. Now look down at the text with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13. We're gonna jump around a bit. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 13. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God. Now, this is the saints, by the way, who are going to receive the benefit of the offering that Paul is taking up at the church of Corinth. So by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because, notice, of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Giving is a doctrinal issue. It's an issue of faith. It's a gospel issue. Paul says that giving actually comes out of, grows out of, is motivated by a confession in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. So, so Christian generosity, you've got to get this, if you're going to get any of this this morning, it grows out of a heart of gratitude for what we've received in Christ Jesus. That's why we give. We don't give out of necessity. God doesn't need anything we have. Don't misunderstand it. Brother and sister, you've got to get this as a church member. I've got to get this as a pastor. God does not need what we have. Moreover, he doesn't need us. We are eternally privileged to have the opportunity to participate and what God is doing in the world. Amen. This is a privilege. It's one of the challenges, isn't it, of talking about giving? 
Because it's so easy to make our way into the guilt trip. This is what you ought to be doing, you know. And, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe there's a place and a time for that. It's not, it's not my MO. Because I don't, well, you know, I don't see that that's the primary motivation in the New Testament for giving. In fact, let me say it this way. If you are giving merely out of guilt and not out of faith and generosity, there probably ought to be repentance. Gospel giving, Christian giving, as a member of the local church is motivated by gratitude for what God has given to us in Jesus Christ. And that's precisely what Paul says. It grows out of the confession of the gospel of Christ. It grows out of our faith in Jesus. And this is why, by the way, Paul points to Christ as the example of giving himself. He does that back in chapter 8. So look back at chapter 8, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Here's the foundation of giving to the local church. You ready? 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Why? So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's what motivates us to give. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, that though he was rich and enjoyed the wealth of heaven as God the Son, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become eternally wealthy in him and through him. That motivates giving to the local church. So what we're talking about fundamentally when we discuss giving generously to the church really is an increased awareness of the generosity God has shown us through Christ. So consider this with me for just a moment as we reflect on the gospel. What is it that we as Christians believe? We believe that God the Son became truly human while remaining truly God in order to rescue us. That's what happened in the incarnation, right? The the Spirit of God overpowers, overshadows Mary's womb. And for this reason, she conceives The God-man. At that point, the God-child. The God-boy. But his sacrifice didn't stop, of course, at the incarnation, at the conception. No, he, he went through the process of being born, of growing up, of becoming thirsty, of experiencing hunger, of being sleepy of being afflicted by what it means to live in a fallen world yet without sin. He obeyed the Father perfectly in our place in order to keep covenant for us, to keep agreement. We were created by God. We were to obey God. We failed to obey God. We needed someone to obey God for us. That's precisely what he did. But his obedience didn't stop in his life. It actually led him all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And with resolve, empowered by the Spirit, the God-man stood up and made his way to the cross telling us in the Gospel of John, no one takes my life from me. Don't misunderstand, disciples, when you see me hanging on the cross. 
Don't believe the lie that, that fundamentally someone robbed me of life. I gave it. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul says in Philippians chapter two. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea on a Friday evening before the Sabbath. He stayed in the tomb, that is his body. Stayed in the tomb Friday night, all day Saturday, Saturday night, and then early Sunday morning, the disciples arrived at the tomb to find the tomb empty because Christ had defeated sin, death, and hell by means of his death, burial, and resurrection. He did all of that to rescue us. You see? You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. If you don't know this Jesus Christ, if you're visiting this morning perhaps, or maybe, you look, maybe you're a member of the church. That's possible, isn't it? It's possible to be standing in this pulpit and to be proclaiming the gospel that you don't actually believe. That's possible. So no matter where you are in terms of your status in membership or in the church or outside of the church, if you're here this morning and you've not come to treasure Jesus Christ supremely above all else, there's no better time than the present, right? So I would exhort you this morning to Recognize that you are in desperate need of his saving work, that you can't save yourself. And none of us in this room can. But you do bring the necessary requirement to be saved, and that's sin. That's a prerequisite. To be saved, you need something from which to be saved. And we bring sin to the equation. Christ provides a solution. And so trust in Jesus Christ. Place your hope in Christ. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ. If that's where you are this morning, we want to talk to you. It's a massive decision, and it's a decision that's worked in you by the power of the Spirit of God. It's actually not something you produce. It's something God does in you and through you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure in the end. But if that's where you are, then please visit with us after the service. You can go head out one of these two doors, these double doors rather, and take a left. And that same room I mentioned earlier called the crossroads on the right-hand side out there, we would love to visit with you after the service to come alongside of you in prayer and you alongside of us to learn more about what it means to serve this Savior who, though he was rich, he became poor so that we by his poverty might become rich. Now, you'll notice, and we'll move on to our second answer that's one answer. We're one answer in. We've got a few more to go. But that's the, this is the foundation. This is the foundation of all Christian generosity, really. And it's the foundation of Christian generosity in relationship to the church. You will notice that throughout the sermon, I will not insist on a particular percentage that you should give to the church. Now, let me say something. There are many faithful men and women of God throughout church history that have argued that the believer in Jesus Christ must give 10% of their income to the church. There are good reasons to believe that, and they may be right, okay? I may be wrong. I I do think, I think tithing, namely giving 10%, is a good starting place. I do. It's found consistently throughout the Old Covenant. Um, It's even found during the times of Abraham. Uh, let me say a couple of things, though. I'm not going to get into all the details here. There are, there are sermons I preached in our Deuteronomy series. You can go back and listen to those if you like. 
You may have to endure some things there, but you can go back and maybe learn more about how I view this in Scripture. The name of the sermon, you can jot these down if you're interested in this. The first sermon is called Giving Then, Giving Now. This is in Deuteronomy 14. You can go back and look at our Deuteronomy series. And then a second sermon I preached right after that was just to flesh this out a bit more. It was called Giving Christianly. So giving then, giving now, and then giving Christianly. And here's a synopsis of what I said, and and I still believe this to be true, regarding giving for the believer in Jesus Christ. Rather than instruct Christians to give a particular percentage of their earnings to the church, like a tithe, 10%, which by the way, again, that's fine. Or, or as I would submit to you, just over 20%, which is what the tithes would have amounted to for an Israelite throughout the Old Covenant. So rather than insisting on 10% or over 20% as a, as a faithful example of Christian giving, here's, here's my opinion. God instructs his people to give in response to the grace of God in Christ. That's the instruction. Let your giving be commensurate with what you've received in Christ. Now think about that for just a second. What does that mean? That means you give it all. That means we give it all. That means everything we own belongs not to us, but to God. In fact, I would suggest to you that giving that is motivated by the gospel is never limited to 10%. Ever. Ever. I don't think that Christ gave merely 10% for us on the cross, right? And that's what motivates us. Now, again, all that to say, if you're giving 10% and you're walking in obedience to Jesus and that's a sacrifice and you're giving on a regular basis or whatever percentage you're giving as an offer to God and Christ and a commitment to the church as a reflection of the gospel, that is something that you have to decide or you and your spouse have to decide in prayer before God. Absolutely. But I am suggesting to you that we ought not limit ourselves to a ceiling of a percentage concerning what we're willing to give in service of Christ and in service to the church, okay? So that's that's typically how I teach this kind of thing and you can can throw tomatoes later, all right? You probably didn't bring any this morning. Maybe next Lord's Day you can do that, all right? So second, second reason why you should give generously to the local church Not only does it express the gospel, when you give, you receive. And we're gonna go through these a little quicker. When you give, you receive. Now, this is not mercenary giving. We'll talk about that in just a second. It's important to nuance this, when you give, you receive, because of the proliferation of abuse regarding this principle in Scripture, right? Sow seed. You may not have a dollar to your name. Give that 50 cents. You may not can feed your child tonight, but give it. And if you give it, here's the promise that comes oftentimes to the abuse, okay? I'm not saying the person shouldn't give it, but here's the promise. If you give it, God will multiply that money with the result that you have more money. That's mercenary giving. It's not Christian giving. In other words, you're not actually giving out of a heart of gratitude for what Christ has done, you're giving in order to get more money. It's actually a bit like gambling, to be honest. Except you're being promised that you're going to win. 
Now, this is the verse that's often abused, I think. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Look at the text with me. The point is this. Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Well, there you have it, right? If you give a dollar, you're going to get $10 back. Or if you give $100, you're going to get $1,000 back. And if you give $1,000, you see the idea. By the way, that may be. That may be. God may choose to do that. He may choose. He may choose. If you sacrifice and give your last dollar to leave you broke. Where am I getting that from the text? Well, look here. The text promises a reward for generosity, but I want you to notice that Paul never identifies the reward as temporary prosperity. And he never identifies the reward as temporary prosperity for the purpose of self-indulgence. In fact, Paul turns our attention away from financial prosperity, the focus of many who distort this verse, and turns us toward the abundance of God's grace for obedience. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, there are a couple of times he does this. Verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you. All right, so now if we're reading this improperly, we're thinking, well, maybe he'll give us more money. So that, now get this, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good what? There it is. What is God saying? That as he cultivates obedience and self-sacrifice in you that's manifested in generosity, he promises, he promises to respond to that generosity by continuing to cultivate more obedience in Christ. When you give, you receive. You receive what? You receive more strength to obey Jesus Christ. That's the goal. The goal is not a bigger house or a nicer car. God may give you that. Don't hear me say he won't. He's capable of doing so. However, that's not the promise of the text. The promise of the text is when we give generously, God graciously provides enough for us so that we are equipped for a life of obedience to Christ. It's actually quite similar, actually, to, uh, let me think about this, Romans 8. 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good, right? We love that. God uses everything for our good, but the context actually defines what good is. What's good in the context? Being conformed to the image of his son. Our greatest eternal good is to look more like, love more like, think more like, live more like Jesus Christ. Christ. And it's actually quite similar here in the text. As you give generously, God promises to reward that generosity, which, by the way, he cultivates in us. Okay, so he cultivates the obedience in you and then rewards the obedience. What a generous God. But he promises to reward that generosity by cultivating more deeply, more effectively, in you, the image of Jesus Christ Amen. for obedience to Christ. Good. You want to obey God more? Give more. You want to serve Christ more passionately? Generously give to the body of Christ. God promises to work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure.
So first, generous giving expresses the gospel. Second, when you give, you receive. Indeed, you do. Maybe money. Maybe, again, I want to say that over and over and over again. But pastor, God gave me more money when I, when, when I gave generously that one time. Praise the Lord. You know why he gave you the money? To serve Christ. That's why he gave you the money. Third, third reason why you should give generously to the local church. Because generous giving is an act of trusting God to provide. Generous giving is an act of trusting God to provide. Can I just say this at this point in the sermon? You know, we perhaps preach best what we need to learn most, I think. One of the privileges of, of walking through a text or preaching on the Lord's Day really is I, I'm being conformed to the image of Christ right alongside of you, maybe in a more concentrated manner, I don't know, because let not many of you become teachers, for as such you obtain a stricter judgment. And I'm hopeful that since God grants a stricter judgment, he grants a greater grace. That's my hope. So I don't preach any of this as someone who's arrived. There are people in this room who model this so well. And they model this well for the rest of us. I aspire to model it more effectively today than I did yesterday. And so on and so forth, by God's grace. Okay, so just know that. So third, generous giving is an act of trusting God to provide. Now this is related to what we just stated, but let's make it clear. Second Corinthians 9, 8 and 9, okay? Second Corinthians 9, 8 and 9. Just a few words there. And God is what? Able. That's enough. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having, and notice how he says this, all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. Hear the emphasis? You lack nothing. Why? Because you serve the sovereign God over heaven and earth. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he's given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. It's all his. So you're trusting God to provide. So giving really is a declaration. It's a declaration that our trust is not in our money. How many times does Jesus warn us about the love of money, right, in some form or fashion? Paul will say it this way, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's kind of a newer English translation. I think it gets at the sense of what he says. Some of the older translations said the love of money is the root of all evil. Something to that as well. Jesus warns about the rich man for whom it is easier to get through the eye of a needle than to get into heaven. I don't misunderstand what he's saying. It's impossible for a rich or a poor man to get into heaven aside from the miraculous and intervening work of the Spirit of God. But there is something, isn't there, about the allure of riches and wealth, self-sufficiency. I had a couple of brothers reminding me of this this morning. It's, it's enticing to think that I'm actually safe because of X amount in my account. 
I'm actually okay. My future is secure. Not because there is a God in heaven who loves me and sovereignly orchestrates all things for his glory and my good, but because I have a substantial 401k or something like this. This is, of course, a caution throughout Scripture. How do we fight this? How do we battle this? And I'll never forget, I don't think, I haven't to to date. When I say that sometimes, I think, well, you don't know if you're going to forget it. I haven't yet. I read a book years ago written by uh, a couple of Methodists. And um, I like to read authors from other traditions. And, And one of the things they said in this work was, it was, It's an excellent point. They said one of the best ways, most effective ways to fight greed or avarice, as the the old Christians would call it, is to give it away. One of the best ways to fight dependence on money is by giving it away. You can't depend on it if you give it away, right? And I remember thinking, of course, of course, yeah, I'll give it away. Take it, God. <laughs> yeah. Generous giving is an act of trusting God to provide and not trusting in our money. Fourth, fourth, we're going to keep marching. Everything we have belongs to God. All related to what we've already said. Everything we have belongs to God. So why not give it? It's not yours. It's not mine. Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Not just the things, but the people. I think that's you, and I think that's me. Psalm 50, a great text, verses 10 through 12 on giving, a great text on what it means to understand God's sovereign ownership over all things and the ways in which that might motivate us to give. Here's what the text says. God says this, for every beast of the forest is mine. We tell our kids never say mine when they're younger because nothing actually is properly theirs. Everything properly is God's. He is able justifiably to say concerning everything, mine. So he says here, every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. So in other words, I don't just own them, I know them. All that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Now the point, of course, is not that God gets hungry, doesn't get hungry, that's part of the point. But if it were possible for God to get hungry, he is more than enough. Of course, he's self-sufficient in himself. Fundamentally, we own nothing. But we're stewards, aren't we, brothers and sisters? Your home, it's not yours. You know how I know that? It won't be long before you don't live in it anymore. It's true. Your cars, they don't belong to you. Your very life isn't your own. You've been bought with a price. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, therefore glorify God in your bodies 
So as we recognize that something belongs to God, we wield it and employ it in service to God. And so it is with generosity in giving to the local church. Notice what happens in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 12 when God's people give generously to the church. Notice this, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. You see that? It not only meets needs, but it overflows in many thanksgivings to God. People worship the Lord, give thanks to God through the generosity and on account of the generosity of God's people. And then notice how Paul concludes chapter 9, verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. It's from him. I'll never forget a friend of mine who was probably the most generous person or at least as generous as anyone I've ever met in my entire life. And uh, this particular friend, anytime someone would thank him for giving something to them, no matter the amount, he would consistently say, well, you know, it's not ours. Thank God. So very true. So first, generous giving expresses the gospel. Second, when you give, you receive. Third, Giving is an act of trusting God to provide. Fourth, everything belongs to God anyway. Finally, fifth, your generous giving, and this is really practical, okay? We're gonna get super practical here. Your generous giving supports gospel ministers and fuels gospel ministry. Let me say that again. Your generous giving supports gospel ministers and fuels gospel ministry. So this means, for example, that the generosity of this congregation helps to pay those who are pastoring and teaching so that we can continue pastoring and teaching, hopefully with faithfulness and the freedom to do so. Galatians 6, verse 6, I'll mention a few verses to you. Galatians 6, 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. This is a principle we find throughout scripture. When you benefit from the word of God, then it's natural to respond by supporting those who, or through whom that benefit came to you. First Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Verse 18, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. And then the other passage I'll mention to you is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14, where Paul the apostle says that the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. It's just, it's a kindness of the Lord. Now, Paul, for a season, chose to forego on this right. It was only for a season. He tells us elsewhere, of course, he benefits from the generosity of others. But for a season, he chose to forego, and he, of course, constructed tents to help pay the bills, to serve as an example for others who needed to work hard with their hands in serving Jesus Christ. Now, this is not limited to pastors. I should say this. It includes supporting those who serve to assist in supporting gospel ministry and providing many ministry opportunities for the rest of us to engage in. And for this, we just go back to that same principle in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. The laborer deserves his wages. This is is one of the reasons we give to the local church. It 
It helps to support gospel ministers and it fuels gospel ministry. Let me give you a few examples of how your giving supports gospel ministers and fuels gospel ministry. Your giving takes care of my family and me. And it is not lost on us. I am, I am acutely aware that that is not a promise God has made to me in gospel ministry. But when you give to this church, you are, in a very tangible sense, putting food on our table, paying for what we have, blessing us and freeing us up as a family to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, it's not lost on my children. On a regular basis, one of my children will say, we got to enjoy that because of the generosity of the church, didn't we, Dad? And I'm able to say, yes. And I'm able to say to them, you know, one of the ways you can see the generosity of Jesus Christ is through the church. They're being raised in a context because of your generosity where they're able to experience that. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. It's not lost on us. Staff members, I hope, I hope it's not lost on any of you either. Many of you in this room are staff, others perhaps staff who can't be here this morning. You are paid through the generosity of this local congregation. Why? To do ministry. That's why. You're paid to do vocational ministry and uh, may it not be lost on you that you benefit directly from God's kindness through his people. Your giving takes care of every single staff member here. Why? So they can serve the body, support the ministry, and help provide additional opportunities for each of you to spend time making disciples. So let's keep going on this. Additionally, your giving, your generous support, fuels gospel ministry in this way. It helps purchase biblically faithful, theologically sound curricula through which we catechize our younger worshipers and others to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're investing in the spiritual vitality of a future generation. What a privilege that is. You're giving offers increased discipleship opportunities for volunteers and leaders. There are more and more opportunities that come through your giving that provides the space for disciple-making privileges that each of you even get to participate in. Your giving helps take the gospel to those who do not yet trust in Jesus Christ. That includes here locally and beyond. Your giving helps supplement the revenue necessary for offering an education that is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ through our church academy. Your giving helps provide the necessary resources to care for this facility. We're blessed, aren't we? To have this facility, this campus. We are absolutely blessed to have a building at all, much less a building like this. And your giving helps take care of this. It helps adorn the gospel in this facility. This includes, by the way, regular giving that helps provide regular maintenance to all of our facility, or facilities, we might even say, plural. It also includes special offerings like the main worship center remodel that we voted on a few months ago and we've opened up this fund and 
I've had a number of conversations lately talking with a number of brothers and sisters, one of whom actually is kind of an expert in this approach of how to do this well and faithfully. And we're in the organizing stage of how to do this well, but you need to know this. When you give to the main worship center remodel, what are you doing? You're investing in gospel ministry that will happen right here in this room. That's what it's about. It's not about what's elaborate. It's about an elaborate gospel. And this is the space that God has entrusted to us. That's why you give through special offerings like main worship center remodel and regular offerings that help to take care of all of our facilities. So what does all this mean? I know I need to wrap up. This is part of what it means, by the way, to give me three weeks away from the pulpit. I'm tempted to go a little bit long and make up for some lost time, Okay. And you think that's no different than any other Lord's Day. <laughs> you lie, Pastor. What does all this mean? Just a few exhortations. It means that we are privileged to give regularly and sacrificially to the body of Christ here. That's what it means as a member. If you're not a member, it's different. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're worshiping. We're glad you've chosen to gather with us. But if you are a member here, you have committed to be a participating member in the vitality of this local church, which includes, but is certainly not limited to, giving generously to the church. So if you're a member and you're not giving, ask yourself this question, okay? Why? Why are you not giving? Perhaps you're giving to other causes. That's wonderful. Don't allow those causes to eclipse the centrality of the local church. Please. There are tremendous causes. Christ promised to build one of them. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Perhaps, perhaps you're not giving because you're going through a difficult financial Time And that is understandable. Only you, only you, and potentially you and your spouse can understand what you're going through. However, I want you to consider, I want you to consider prayerfully asking the Father how it is you can sacrifice for the glory of his name and service to the church. I'm, look, I'm blessed. I am blessed as a pastor. I was blessed in this way at Grace Bible Church as well. Um, it's something that I've chosen to do. Uh, I suppose I don't have to do this, but, but I do feel like I have to do this. I'm blessed not to know what you give individually. I'm looking out on a sea of brothers and sisters and I have no idea what you're giving. Because I do not want to be motivated in my ministry to you individually by anything other than the gospel. Right. And that's a battle as it is. And so I don't want the added weight of knowing precisely what any of you give individually. So know that. Know that. You're not giving to please your pastor. No, no. Ask the question, though, however, if you're not giving in particular, why am I not giving? Am I really reflecting on the sacrificial generosity of God in Christ? Perhaps Perhaps you're not giving because you struggle giving to a church where you would spend the tithes and offerings differently. Can I say something very frank? Welcome to the club. 
I don't know of a single person who if they were giving carte blanche authority to make every decision concerning how every dollar is spent, wouldn't spend it differently. And brothers and sisters, that's the privilege of being a part of a family. One of the privileges of being a part of the family, and I have this conversation with my kids on a regular basis, we're going to go here. I don't want to go there. I want to go there. I understand you're a member of a family. And God has not called us as Christians to exist in isolation, making all of the decisions about all the minutia concerning where our money goes. He gives us the joy of giving it away in faith, trusting the Spirit of God to work in and through the congregation. And in some respects, if I could be frank, to rescue the congregation from us individually. And that includes me. So it's a joy, isn't it? It's a joy when we think about it that we don't get what we want. We don't get, as one author says, I think it was Colin Hansen, we don't get the church we want. We get the church we need. And so it goes, so it goes with our giving. So, Reflect, why? Why am I not giving and how might the gospel call me to give and support the direction of this church? If you're on staff, ask the same question. If anyone in this room should understand the importance of the generosity of God's people in giving to the church, it is staff members, probably staff members ought to give more than everybody else. That's just my personal opinion. It's nowhere in scripture. But I do get concerned, I do get concerned at times that we, and this is first person, plural, that we sometimes fail to see that actually every dollar that comes to us is on account of the sacrificial generosity of others. And I need to learn as much as anybody what that means to then respond and give back to the local church through which God has shown tremendous generosity to me. Amen. Some of you have heard the story of the little girl, and we are wrapping up with this. Angie, here we go. In third conclusion... The little girl, you've heard me say this probably, who received a quarter and a dollar from her mother with the simple instruction, whenever the offering plate comes by, place whatever you decide into the offering plate, quarter or the dollar. When the plate came by, the little girl placed the quarter in the plate. And when asked by her mother why she chose the quarter, she said, I was gonna give the dollar until the pastor said we should give cheerfully. (laughs) And I knew I would be much happier giving the quarter and keeping the dollar. There I am. There I am. Although many, if not all of us, can relate perhaps to this little girl. This is the point. When we understand that our giving is an expression of the gospel by which we've been saved. When we understand that when we give, we receive, that giving is an act of trust in God, that everything belongs to God anyway, and that our giving supports gospel ministers and fuels gospel ministry, then I would suggest to you we are better motivated to give generously and even, even cheerfully to Christ in and through his church. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for these, my brothers and sisters. Oh, how I need to learn more what we talked about this Lord's Day morning. So work in me and through me for your good pleasure. And I do pray, Father, that you would work in all of us. Not in order to attain to a percentage, that's not the point, I don't think. But so that each of us is willing to reflect on how it is that our giving expresses the gospel and does all the other things we talked about this Lord's Day morning, recognizes that we're more blessed when we give than when we receive. You own it all. And that through these things, you're fueling and supporting ministers and ministry. We pray this with faith and trust in your goodness and your sovereignty and in your eternal wealth. Through Christ we pray, amen.